Did any questions come up during lunch for you about what we've covered so far? Up there from, I think I'm clear, somewhat clear, from craving to clinging, and then I think there's a big gap between clinging and becoming for me, mm -hmm. um, and also how that just goes to birth. Right. So, yeah, a little bit about that transition. Yeah. And so if you, if you watch yourself, the great thing about this is that this is not, I'm not describing some process that goes on in your liver that you will never have the first-hand experience of. This is, can be developed into a flow of first-hand experiences of watching your own self-conditioning, conditioning within your own process. But it's helpful to have it outlined so you can um, not just be fooled by it, but see if you can see it in motion. So if you're resting in contentment, you have these six sense doors, they're being given contact, and maybe it's pleasant, maybe it's unpleasant, but you stabilize, or maybe it's neutral. And then you go into discontent. You can actually watch that process. Watch yourself being good enough, it doesn't have to be the most amazing thing ever, but basically content. And then something begins to churn in you, and a discontent begins to arise. And maybe it's because things suddenly got unpleasant and there's more discontent. And maybe you're content and the mind just finds trouble for itself and begins to kind of look for trouble. It's tired of feeling okay and it kind of <laughs> likes the drama of <clears throat> seeking. And then it gets hooked by something and gets obsessed about it. And so that's when the craving locks in and the mind begins to go from like um, clay that you can play with to where it hardens. And it hardens trying to actually find security for itself. That movement, that you have to kind of watch this in meditation to see some of these things. Sometimes they happen so fast that you may not have actually seen this. But to be in the stiffness of mind doesn't necessarily come automatically with a sense of self. It's just stiffness of mind. I, I went away for a week and came back and my housemates had rearranged the furniture. <clears throat> and I walked in and, and it was just stiffness of mind. I said, like, that couch shouldn't be there. That, it actually looks better and it shouldn't be there. <laughs> they did a really good job. I'm clear of it. <clears throat> I just don't want to reshape my mind. It took a shape. And then I began generating, how am I going to get that couch back there? Because it definitely looks better. <clears throat> but I want it back the way it was. So my mind started like generating stories why we should move it back the way it was. And I could actually see this made no sense. They did a really good job. It looked better there. But I now have to kind of update everything. And I don't want to. I'm tired. I don't want to update all my files. That couch belongs in the other room where it looked worse. <laughs> so I might, And I could see that. I was generating a conversation. I was like, oh my God, I, that's going to be a very difficult conversation to have because I don't even believe it. I just really want to say I don't want to adapt. But that would be 
That so I have to generate. It's like, no, nah, what am I going to try? What am I going to try? Mm, I'll try this conversation. Oh, that's that, that, that one actually could work. Okay, now, I got a starting place. But then it hadn't quite become action yet. I hadn't clung to the self. It, becoming and birthing is like craving and clinging. Craving and clinging are more energetic, whether the mind itself is elastic or taken shape. Becoming is where you start craving a self-narrative. You start craving on a narrative level, how can I work this out so that I get what I want? And then once you see it, you then take birth into it. You say that thing, you do that thing, you launch a whole project when it's still in the conceptual form, you're trying things out, that's the becoming energy. It's trying to become something, but it hasn't yet locked into place. Once it locks into place and you step into that, then you put something in motion. But it's really like craving and clinging, but now it's operating on a higher level. And it's trying to manage more pleasure and security than just chocolate or you know my my music my chocolate is trying to get a much larger grasp on this whole show that we're in so it invests a lot more because it's usually a, a much more global solution <clears throat> i moved into a house i went house hunting four four years ago three years ago and found a really beautiful house much more beautiful than i thought i would get to live in at this point in my life <clears throat> Got to move in, but the um, landlord said she might sell the house. And I was like, okay, I can't really invest in living here because it's all very uncertain. And the market was so bad, <clears throat> she said, okay, I'm not going to try to sell it. This all works. I was like, okay, great. But I hadn't changed my checks, my driver's license, hadn't really lived there. So if it, she, had, she sold the house, it would have been a drag, but I hadn't, I hadn't dropped in roots yet. But once she said we could live there long-term, I really began to relax into the house and enjoy living there. It was pleasant. It was pleasant at the eye, the ear. I could hear coyotes at night, smell the fresh air. Had people over, they praised me, like, oh my God, you get to live in this house? I was like, oh, this house has something about me. I kind of like that. <clears throat> so it feels good. My checks come back from the bank. They have the address on it. They have my driver's license, with my picture, and this address. <clears throat> it starts to become much more woven into my self-story. Then, a year later, she said, you know, actually, uh, I am thinking of selling it. And then this panic came over me. I was like, oh, no. How do I, how can I afford this house? Because she can't sell it. If she does, then I don't get to live here. And I watched myself go into this. My, I'm about to go through a death. I'm about to go through psychological jaramarana. I'm being... Some stability that I was governing, all this well-being I was in, is about to die. And so I watched myself ramp up into this. And because I know this teaching, I was like, you can't suffer this much without having taken birth. So where did you take birth? And I went back in time. It's like when my checks came back with the address on it. And when my driver's license came back with the address on it. And when people came over and said, oh, I like this house, that that felt good. And I started knowing how to get from point A to point B around the house. I was like, oh, that whole time I was sort of birthing myself deeper into this house. I was like, okay, well, 
did have becoming energy. It's like, yeah, I was seeking a place to live. I really wanted some, I didn't want to be a wanderer. I wanted something underneath me. I'm like, okay. So I was seeking. And I began to cling to the identity of it. Clinging to identity is one of the places we cling. We cling to views and identities. <clears throat> so I watched that. I was like, oh, I did stiffen up. I began to really stiffen up. So much so that when she said she was going to sell the house, I wasn't adaptable. I was going to die. I mean, I was going to psychologically, more than moving the furniture, is like on a larger scale. And so I started using dependent origination to come down through these layers. And it's like, rather than just freaking out, where did I get caught? It's like, oh, it was pleasant. There was a lot of pleasant Vedana. And the neutral Vedana was pleasant in its neutrality. It wasn't boring, but it was calming. I like this type of Vedana. Oh, all my sense doors were contacting. I like this. I need to solidify this. And yet, because of these teachings, there is no final refuge on that level. Everything is conditional. The house is conditioned. My relationship to the house is conditioned. I haven't stepped out of the conditioned nature, but I wanted to make it permanent. Unconsciously, I didn't want to relate to the situation as conditional and affected by change. And that the house was dukkha. The house was not satisfying in a long-term fashion. It was a temporary refuge. But as much as I've worked my program not to get, not to get caught, I didn't know I was caught until she told me we might have to move soon. It was best, and so it exposed it. And I renegotiated my relationship to the house as a temporary day-by-day -day refuge. And it was relieving. It meant that actually I woke up. It's like, I've been taking this house for granted, but it's a day-by-day -day refuge. This is sobering. This is not bad news. I've been, I really want to appreciate it. I've got, actually gone kind of like asleep at the wheel here, but I actually don't want to. I want to, I want to really be here for this ride because it may not work. And so rather than just being bad news, it began to wake me up. And I renegotiated the right relationship to this house. I do the same thing with this body all the time. I keep going to sleep at the wheel and assuming I get this for 40, 50 more years. No, no, maybe through the day, you know. But if you live with it and don't just have a panicked relationship to that, you then find that you're, you're having a sober relationship to the way things actually are. I studied physics when I was younger, so some of those paradigm understandings really are helpful. When Galileo looked at the telescope and realized many things through direct seeing that the Earth went around the sun, that many of the planets went around the sun, nothing changed but ignorance. But it was hard because that ignorance had taken deep fundamental shape. But it had been working perfectly all along. So all we're dispelling here is ignorance. We're just getting ignorance out of the system and we find that it functions much better. So I have a much better relationship to this body. I don't abandon it. I don't not clean it. I don't live in it with a sense of doom. I have one trillion cells pumping along, even when I sleep. It's amazing. I get to live in this thing, just not forever. Let me pass the mic.
Hi. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to how how to have that experience as a relief rather than fear. Yeah. I've experienced trying to um, a lot of clinging around my job, a lot of clinging around um, where I'm living, and and um, and I've tried to see it as as day by day, as you don't know, as this isn't me, this doesn't define me, and what I felt is incredibly unstable and a lot of fear right. and a lot of anxiety. Right. That's a progression that we develop over time. And those are often called dukkha insights or suffering insights. We're waking up, but the, we're waking up out of a confusion. And in that waking up process, there is a lot of uh, disorientation and a lot of sense of loss. But then you actually wake up into the sober relationship, the clear relationship. There is a working through pain. And what I would do is, when you look at a system and seeing where it's getting hung up, you, you can ask a teacher or intuit, if I had other types of patterns in me, what would that look like? And so if you had what's called sadha, which is faith or confidence or trust, then you can deal with uncertainty because actually it's this factor within that we can, um, we can cultivate. So you're cultivating faith and trust. Every time you walk across a floor, you've proven it to yourself. So you no longer have fear that you're going to fall over. And yet, each time, each step is a controlled fall forward. So you can tap into the sadha, the confidence, faith, trust that you are actually already using, just haven't, it's like adding logs to a fire. You have a certain amount of sadha operating in you, but not enough to, to really meet the truth of unpredictability, radical um, change. So you need to build certain factors that are great. Mindfulness, wisdom, and this factor of faith, confidence, sadha are very good for working with um, anxiety. But until then, if you point your intimacy towards um, an area where you don't have the factors to be awake in it, you'll find that more primitive patterns try to help you there. The clinging, the fear, the reifying of self. So it's really a building of capacity so we can finally handle all of reality with, um, with wisdom and, and beautiful qualities versus old, um, even prehistoric uh, qualities of flight, fight, freeze mentality. So we're building that capacity. And bit by bit, we can take on more of the weight of the actualities of our lives versus um, succumbing to them. I once volunteered in a hospice ward for a year. Um, I did not change the nature of death. The nature of death changed me. And so the person who concluded a year later had made peace with death. And more than peace with death, saw that it brings a sobering preciousness. But it wasn't, that sounds like a great outcome. Why was it difficult? And it was difficult because I actually had to pass through all these deep, unexamined conditioning that death was 
immeasurable loss. I can't imagine losing people close to me. I don't want to die myself. And so I had to kind of cook a little bit through those slowly over time with wiser people around me who had done that process, who held me through the learning curve. And then I began to see, I began to feel more at ease with this dying process that, that happens. And I went there to be of service and really I got served um, in that process. So being held by people who, are, who have Jedi skills where you're still learning <laughs> to help you um, uh, deal with the energy that's arising around all the unpredictability so that it turns into vitality, a dancing mentality with all this uncertainty versus the contractions and putting that energy into bracing or collapsing or panicking. You're getting, it's the same amount of energy to dance with change as it is to fight it. The fighting just is really painful, but you can learn to be graceful in the nature of all this change. And that happens slowly. Yeah. We'll do uh, one more, uh, two more over here. We'll do you and, the, and whoever's behind you. We all go up. <laughs> also, sometimes the batteries die in those things. And yeah. um, I understand up through clinging and becoming. Um, becoming is becoming like uh, belief systems developing belief systems, rigidifying, this is who I am. Yeah, it, they're in, it's in the realm of any... Selfing is uh, mm. self, but it's also property. It's mine. It's we. Mm -hmm. It's the wrong, wrong type of we. It's a defensive we versus them. Mm. Um, it's, it's buying into this precariousness of contentment and then reifying it. So anytime you've done that, and um, this is where you can see this playing out over large scale. So we, we live in a society with tremendous uh, white skin privilege. Well, I was going to say us, them. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. so we think we're setting ourselves up for this confidence, but we've actually now taken the truth of the way things are, and we, we put unnecessary strain in that system, and now not now, for a long time, it's been challenged by the underlying truth of it. And as that confusion is being broken down, there's fear. And yet the next generation, I don't see what you guys are worried about. Mm -hmm. But the previous generation couldn't imagine it otherwise because they had invested in a certain type of selfing. And it's, that's why some of this suffering you can't see just individually. You have to see it played out collectively. And collective ignorance causes selfing patterns so that those with privilege can have access to the pleasant Vedana as they understand pleasant Vedana. And those disempowered don't get access to that. And so we have all these strains in there. That, that somehow when you can see a river is made up of many drops. It's, just, it's not made of something different other than water. And water behaves a certain way in a small stream and in a large river. So our this is our 
national and our global problems can be seen through the same lens. Why are we not responding to climate change? I like the patterns. You know, I, I don't want a car that gets from zero to 60 in 20 seconds. <laughs> I've driven those. It's like boring. Ah. Really, this new Tesla goes from zero to 60 in like 3.4 seconds? No way! <laughs> Give that to somebody who's like, that's what I want to chase after. It's like, oh, that's going to kill the planet. Bummer. Oh. So we actually have, if you could get 7.3 billion people to choose differently, we could solve uh, climate change. And hunger. And hunger. Mm. There's more than enough. Mm. But we're not there as a species, as a species yet. We have collective misunderstandings. Um, we believe in scarcity. We believe in animosity. And then we reify it. Okay, now what I don't understand is birth. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I understood your um, um, uh, talking about when you birthed um, your house. Yeah. I understood that. Uh, um, uh, description, but I don't understand as you're going up what birthing is. Well, we're using the. I understand know. it coming down when you're talking about um, physical body, but I don't understand it psychologically. Right. So it's um, a simple, simple thing is that you want to go out to dinner with some friends, but you don't know where yet. So you keep giving suggestions. And finally, someone says a suggestion that a lot of minds go, oh, that's the one. Then you start driving towards that restaurant. You walk out the door and you walk in. So there was a becoming, trying to become in a restaurant and actually arriving in a restaurant. One feeds the other. Now, <laughs> you're on. looking for more about psychological. Yeah. Yeah, more psychological. Um, So <clears throat> I have not always been a spirit rock teacher, but I was. there was actually a formal ceremony and I became a spirit rock teacher. And on that day, I didn't feel any different. Right. That's when I became, yeah. I didn't feel any different, but it crept into me. Mm. And people wanted me, it's like the temple, you got to take this a little more seriously. <laughs> you got to kind of, don't tighten around it, but live into this thing. I was like, oh, okay, I got to. I got to step up into this role. But then I started wondering, well, that brings in all these responsibilities and all these stresses and strains. And I was like, why does that have to happen? Why does actually becoming into this role then open me up to, well, what if they don't like me? What if I get fired? What if this happens? What if that happens? Like, oh, I now have to manage this self I just became. But that whole management was really about pleasure, pain, identity management versus like, if you look in any one of my cells, you would not find a scroll that says, herein lies the identity with being a Spirit teacher. Mm -hmm. But I am one, but I am not one. Mm -hmm. I am not, you, I am not a Spirit Rock teacher. Right. You mm -hmm. could not, it just doesn't exist as a okay, thing. Well, we wouldn't find but that. Yeah. if I, if this system takes it a little more seriously, <laughs> Then it begins to show up at meetings where it's supposed to be. And then this whole thing runs better. And then 
I met with happier people and the food is actually there when it's supposed to be there because I went to the committee at the right time. It's like, oh, I see how this works. I got to play, but then not tighten in the identity or the role. I give a great Dharma talk. Let's, let's lock it in right there. That was a good one Tuesday night. I remember three years ago, let's just like, that was me. Let's say that that's, that, that's me. I did that. That one I want to grab onto. I, ah, I need a plaque on a wall or something. <laughs> like, how do I preserve that moment in time? Because that's the guy I've always wanted to be. The next guy goes up, he has a cold, tries to give the exact same talk because he wants the exact same feeling of how great that was. But because it's now like a, so covered with selfing, it doesn't work at all. It's like, no, 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 that's not me. Let's not have that say anything about me. That was, that was nasty. Neither one actually gets to say anything about me. These were the conditions. These were the conditions. It turns out if I'm willing to surf through conditions, I end up being more here. If I try to surf through conditions so I end up there, I'm no longer surfing through conditions. I'm manipulating the system because I know this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I know how to do this game. I can be the self I always wanted to be if I just don't cling. <laughs> so I'm not clinging to the self because I couldn't care less. But uh, where's it going? <laughs> I kind of like that self over there. Oh, don't try to become it because you know that's a trap. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, it's getting closer. Oh, I got this one down. <laughs> and where does the dukkha come in? <laughs> and the dukkha comes in because... No, I get it. <laughs> but here's the thing. So can these things grow out of conditions, but they also flavor what comes next. And so a very mild winter flavors the spring that follows. So a very mild clinging flavors mild becoming, which means that it could, the, you could have lar- large becoming energy, but it's not flavored by clinging. It's flavored by love. And so a lot of love, I, one, I once was in a um, community in, in Pune, India. I woke up and I had a cup of tea. <clears throat> and once the caffeine hit my bloodstream, <laughs> this vision came. I want to bring 12 college students interested in socially engaged Buddhism to work with these um, people overthrowing their untouchability in India. And I thought, oh my God, like 12 young people and trying to like manage them through this. Like, I don't want to do that. But then this love just kept coming. It's like, this is so doable and I'm going to do it. And I actually had more, not the glory of it, but more like, oh my God. But I ended up doing it. And it was a very beautiful trip, born mostly out of love and courage and faith in humanity. And there was self in there and very nervous about managing something that big. But it wasn't born of ego, trying to produce ego. It was born of a vision of what I knew to be possible, an intuition that the young Indians and the young Americans were going to just fall in love with each other. And I just had to get them near enough to each other. And they were probably all going to live through it. Yeah. <laughs> See, she lived through it. <laughs> All the better for it. <clears throat> so that was uh, 
there was definitely caffeine involved, so it was like a big rush of, a big rush of becoming. But it wasn't born from clinging. And it's one of the things you have to do is, does what you want make you hate what you are or have? And the thing is, I love that moment. So the, the aspiration didn't put my contentment down the road. The aspiration was here and now and also pointing down the road. So there's no, there's no tanha, there's no, I, I gotta find my happiness elsewhere. It's like this vision is the happiness, but then I can't cling to it, I can't govern it, I can't get tight around it, I can't try to make a self-project out of it. That would have been unbearable. But to actually let that energy come to life and let it happen, then the craving was light, the clinging was light, the specifics of how it had to happen were very light, and yet it was all born. And here's the secret, is that it keeps, you die along the way. You don't wait for one big death. You die every day. If you die every day, you die every minute. If you can die every breath, then you don't have to, it doesn't all pile up into one big huge, I can't take this change. You've been changing all along. So I call this the, the fluid self. When the fluid self freezes, you can scratch it, crack it, beat it. But when the fluid self is in its liquid, you do all those same motions and you can't harm it. It just, it's a lot of energy, but it ripples versus being harmed. It only harms when it tries to solidify. And behind you there is one question, then we'll move on. Uh, thank you. I think this is all kind of tying into what I've, I don't know, like, anyway, the concept seemed very useful for what I'm going through, I think. And it, um, But where I am in my life, and I feel like I'm getting some clarity on where I would like to go with my life and things I want to accomplish in the next 10 or 15 years. And so I have this, this vision of, of my future, say, and, um, you know, it's a pretty attractive vision, you know, and it, and it's, and it kind of points me in the direction I want to go. But I, I keep having this sense of well, where the suffering kind of comes in is sort of comparing what is now to what I want to become. And it's, what I want to say, so it's, I guess, trying to reconcile, and I think you were, you were addressing this to some extent about how to, I mean, obviously the, the not clinging part, but there's a certain uh, wanting to become this and, you know, this person who's more accomplished, perhaps more financially secure, mm. you know, this sort of better future thing, and then contrasting it with the here and now, and, you know, often feeling sort of dissatisfied because I'm not accomplishing enough getting towards that, or it seems so right. far away from where I am now. Yeah. <clears throat> so this practice of mindfulness has you be intimate more than you might choose with how things are right now. And the more you do that, the more you expel out of your system being lost in the, the future. And the more you can actually find the, some type of contentment, some type of ease, even if it's by degrees, with here and now, then each step you take is not compelled by craving, clinging, and the type of future you'd be forging out of craving and clinging. So if, if I'm wet in the rain, 
I walk home, I do take off those wet clothes because it's unpleasant. But I don't have to be hating the fact that I'm wet and regretting the fact that I walked in the rain. My mind could brew that. It's like, no, it's just cold, it's wet, it's unpleasant. I'm definitely walking home. I'm definitely going to take off these wet clothes. But I'm not going to go into this extra self-drama. Why did I do it? I'll never walk. Next time there's a cloud in the sky, I'll never do that again. <laughs> I don't have to take on that because that does make me suffer here and now and put my happiness in the future versus it's wet and cold now. That's unpleasant. And I'm about to actually do something about my well-being. So it's fine to, this word uh, bhava, there's, there's room for positive becoming, but it's fueled by wisdom and compassion. And then it's actually quite beautiful. The word for meditation, the, the many types of meditation is called bhavana. It's the same root. You are definitely cultivating something, intentionally cultivating something that will bear fruit here and now and in the future. You just want to put, you just want to be planting the right seeds and cultivating the right fruit. So the more you can actually love yourself as you are now and let that love motivate you to do things differently in the future, knowing not to cling to any of it, knowing not to get desperate, relaxing there, caring for yourself and then taking conscious steps forward, then if it happens or doesn't happen, you still have a type of well-being, but not all your eggs are in the basket of some future, and that you have to gain those eggs back now <laughs> and carrying them along with you. So I want to go on to, to these other steps, if you all will carry along with me. So we have, we have four more steps in this process. We've come down from aging and dying, birth, becoming, clinging, craving, Vedana, pleasure and pain. Pasa is contact. And Salyatana is the sixth sense to our process. So there are four more steps. <clears throat> the next two steps are really only useful for people who have done meditation practice. And really, the sixth sense door thing in contact, if people haven't meditated at all, that's not very intuitive. And so people start to kind of space out or ask very obtuse questions even there. Because you have some practice, you know about these six sense doors and having contact with the present moment. The next two that come, seeing them, how they work, how they influence each other, it takes some time to develop meditation for these two to be useful. They tend not to be so useful in everyday life. So uh, from the six sense door process up, that's pretty useful in daily life. These other two, spending a lot of time worrying about them and being confused about them, I would save that for a retreat. <laughs> but let's do all 12 lengths. Just uh, You might find yourself going like, wait, what? I thought I had it. And then the bottom two are very useful. So coming in, where does all this sixth sense door process arise from? What are the conditions that it arises from? And it arises from Nama Rupa. Namarupa <clears throat> was used at the time of the Buddha to delineate as this um, uh, eternal consciousness energy that is undefined, that is Brahma, 
comes in and starts to manifest, there's a whole need to understand in Indian philosophy, this, uh, um, the, Brahman, the Brahmanical tradition, how there is something and how it connects with consciousness. And so there's a whole trying to understand, understand that. And how is everything, everything divine? And where is there a confusion? So people were talking a lot at the time about Nama Rupa. Nama means mind and Rupa means substance. So this is mind-substance connection. And so it takes on a, a large um, sphere in Indian yogic tradition. And the Buddha just grabbed it, really simplified it, and say, there is mentality interacting with materiality at each of your sense doors. There's a mental process and there is a stimulus process. Your eye is being stimulated by color, your body is being stimulated by what it touches, your tongue is being stimulated by its tastes. So, Nama Rupa, in this tradition, in this place in dependent origination, means that you have um, an intricate cognitive process going along that's behind the six sense doors. So having an active eye, it grows out of the fact that you have an active mental process, a dynamic active mental realm that's uh, in contact with the world around it. The nama part is the mind part, the rupa part is the, is the tangible substance. It gets translated sometimes as mentality and materiality. I don't find that that useful. So if you go into the text and you find mentality and materiality, um, you can work with that if you want. When you actually look at the components of Nama Rupa, it's just that there's a stream of cognitive processing happening. There's input, is perceived, and then there's an impulse in response to what's been perceived. That's what this link does. And so because we all have active mind in relationship to this environment, that's what this link is. It's the active process of cognition. You'll never see this translated as cognition anywhere else but here. <laughs> so if you do this list, this is what you'll see, mentality, materiality. But it just means that there's a, there's a, there's a dance back and forth between the world around you and an internal cognitive process and its job is actually to, to develop more complex understandings of the world. It's not just simple cognition, where you layer in your perceptions. So your eyes are taking in a visual experience, your ears are taking in an auditory experience. Well, let's just stay with the ears. Your ears are taking in vibration, but somehow you're hearing English. You can't turn off the English-producing activity of your mind. You just can't at this point. You can't turn this back into sound. At the six sense doors, this English is sound. But in Namarupa, this is where sound is perceived and put together in a more complex way to be cognized as English. So Namarupa is where we're sweeping through the world and then we're lending a lot of texture. We lend past, we lend future, we perceive things so we make the world that we're living in through this Nama Rupa process, we lend a lot of texture to it, a lot of detail to it in this process. That's Nama Rupa. It's happening all the time. Not many of us are mindful of that process, except on retreat. <laughs>
And then you can watch your mind producing. It can go from the sound of a bird to the thought of a bird to a story about a bird. And then next thing you know, this whole nama rupa has arisen out of simple contact with sound. Does that make sense? Anybody need some more on nama rupa before we go on? Um, I just wanted to see if I if I'm interpreting this correctly. My my inclination is to say it's software. Do you think that's a helpful comparison or not? not it's quite? software combined with hardware. So we we have our brains are constructed to perceive, and that part of your brain can be damaged or injured, and then the perceiving ability breaks down. And there are people who have lost the ability to perceive. Their eye works just fine, but they can no longer interpret even people that they love. It's not because the eye is broken. The hardware has been affected by aging or by some uh, mental illness. But it's also, as you gain experience, your ability to perceive and how you react and how you cognize is shaped by experience. The underlying brain structure changes with experience, but also the information that it's holding changes with experience. So it's both software and hardware. Thank you. Yeah. So because we have Nama Rupa, a stream of Nama Rupa, uh, cooking along, being dynamic, we have this active sixth sense star process that gives us contact with the world. There arises Vedana, and then <clears throat> Vedna, could, we could just pause right there, or we can get very reactive to the pleasure and pain and neutrality of the world, and we, it all goes spilling forward um, into craving, clinging, becoming, birthing, and dying. So understanding this one part of the, the picture here, what does Namarupa grow out of? What are the supportive conditions that allows Namarupa to come to be? And it's this word vijnana, which is consciousness. And consciousness um, consciousness, vijnana here, is really the simple sense information right at the sense door. And so vijnana at the eye is really just shape and color. Vijnana at the ear really is just the tones. If you were to take out nama rupa here, you would take out all the complexity of our world. Vijnana here plays the simple role of awareness. So because there is this general awareness, nama rupa gets to really get going. So the simple uh, analogy is you have a very complicated modern mechanical camera with no film in it. So it's definitely processing all the light coming into it, but it's not landing anywhere. It's not landing anywhere inside the camera. Vijnana is where the information lands so that you're conscious of it. You couldn't be aware of any color at your eye were it not for vijnana couldn't be aware of any sound at your ear if it were not for vijnana. Vijnana is just the simple awareness. The simple awareness then gives birth to all this complex cognizing. 
and they play back and forth on each other. So what you're complexly cognizing affects how you're aware of your world around you and that you are aware of the world around you feeds into this complex cognizing. If you spend time on a retreat, <laughs> that becomes more um, salient. And some people, some experienced practitioners, spend time on what's called the awareness retreat where you're really looking at what is the quality of my moment-by-moment -moment awareness? Is my awareness fairly open? Is it flowing along with some stability? Is it choppy? Is my awareness uh, cloudy? So you're looking at vinyana and the qualities of vinyana. So if you have a cloudy vinyana, your nama rupa is going to be going through a cloudy process. If you have a clear vinyana, your nama rupa is going to be acting in a, in a clear in a clear realm. Nama Rupa ha operates in the realm of consciousness. Consciousness is more like the air in this room and we're the, we're the complex organisms within the air in the room. If this air is the right temperature, we behave one way. If it's the wrong temperature, we behave another. If it's smoky, that's one thing. If it smells good, it's another. So this is the interplay back and forth between consciousness and uh, cognition between uh, vinyana and nama rupa. What would a cloudy vinyana look like? <laughs> a cloudy vinyana? What would it look like? <laughs> uh, it's what your mind looks like uh -oh. when your mind is dull and sleepy. And sometimes there, and then you can use mindfulness to be aware of the qualities of the vinyana, that the vinyana can be very dim it can be foggy, just it's just not interpreting things well. The vinyana can be restless. The vinyana can be unstable. If you look in the Abhidhamma, which is um, deep Buddhist psychology, they talk about there's mental activity and there's the realm in which mental activity is happening. The realm in which mental activity is happening is consciousness. All the mental activity itself is not consciousness, it's more like Namarupa. So Namarupa is the mental activity happening in the, in the realm of consciousness. But they affect each other. And so if the Namarupa is cognizing out of an angry vinyana, it will cognize angry thoughts. And those angry thoughts will keep the vinyana irritated. And so this is where they, they twist on each other and they kind of influence each other. There is actually a sutta where the Buddha said these two things lean on each other like two stalks of grass. If you removed one, the other would fall over. So these two, they arise together. In this particular form, vinyana comes earlier. But that there is a realm of psychic aliveness. There can be the whole dance of namarupa. There can be the whole dance of cognition because there is the stream of arising and passing consciousnesses. And that is that gives those are the conditions out of which Nama Rupa springs to life. <laughs> Let's see if we can move the, the mic around. Um, I'm slightly confused about the order of this because from what I understood earlier about these twelve links was 
there is contact, six sense doors, cognition, uh, vinyana, then vedana. Like then you're cognizing, you're like interpret, you're judging it into pleasure, pain, or neutral. Yeah. And so then you're in, craving or being yeah. aversive to it. That's a good question. So, <clears throat> when the Buddha taught Buddhist psychology, he taught it to the degree necessary to bring clarity to the people in front of him. And most people did not need this complicated of a list. They need a, a, a briefer list. And so when he's talking about the five aggregates, for example, the five aggregates are woven through here, as is the six sensors, they're woven through here. And th these, one, one of the problems with this, with this particular teaching is that um, you almost have to hold it more like an impressionist painting than a, um, a large Swiss watch that works with like perfect precision in, it doesn't quite lend itself to a, to a very clean linearity. And so if you want to see this as cleanly distinct steps that happen, then it breaks down because it actually doesn't happen. It's all inter, it's all interreacting. What you can see is that the quality, if if uh, one type of quality has arisen, it affects what happens next. So in every moment of your life, you have consciousness, but this uh, angry consciousness, there's a downstream effect of it. So the anger and the consciousness might be gone, but all the reactivity and the type of decisions you made, it's time for them to come into action. So uh, that's why you you you'll find other lists where this order is changed. And for that, I find that the six that contact, six sense doors, Namarupa and Vinyana, basically should not be in a particular order because they, they all influence each other so much. Um, but in this, in this progression, um, it just he laid out a progression and stuck with it. But in my experience, they, they happen so fast and they influence each other. So holding in this one way, if it kind of makes sense to you even once, run with it. <laughs> if you think about it too much, then it starts to kind of fold back onto itself. And I could show you plenty of ways this does fold back on itself and all you do is walk away confused. And so I kind of want you to, I want to walk you away with a sense of a, I think I understood this versus like, oh my God, it's a madhouse if you get in there. So... There are other teachings where he talked about a stream of experience, and really it's all happening very closely together. Um, so, you know, for one example, uh, you perceive, you see something and perceive it, and the perceiving comes just a little bit after the seeing of it. But in the stream of seeing something, perception is happening about the same time, it's just a little bit lagging. Yet if I keep looking at the same thing, I'm perceiving it and seeing it at the same time. But really the seeing began earlier, but then they began to run in parallel. And I can have Vedana off of what I'm perceiving versus what I'm seeing. I see a rope, neutral. I think it's a snake. That's more exciting. So the Vedana is not from what I'm seeing, it's from what I'm perceiving. So you can get in there and all of a sudden it all starts to kind of like get wonky. So 
That usually happens around this section. <laughs> Anyhow, so if I can go back in time, <laughs> I would take out Namarupa and just keep, keep it simpler. But there it is. This is what we're working with. Where does all this vinyana come from? What is it being supported by? What's it brewing out of? It's brewing out of sankharas. And <clears throat> sankharas exists in other, the word sankara exists in other realms of Buddhist psychology and in Buddhism. And here sankharas, the, um, when they paint this, they show um, a clay figure making a clay figure. And if you see the two Escher hands painting each other, Sankaras are made and they make. And what Sankaras are in this map, it's, <clears throat> it's wind that blows across a water, churning it up. And so love blows through the mind and churns it up. Hatred blows through the mind and churns it up. It becomes mental activity, but it also reinforces itself and creates more mental activity. Sankaras go dormant, and then under the right conditions, they become active again and go dormant. And so you can also see sankaras as a, a fruit and a seed, a fruit and a seed. So the fruit makes the seed, but the seed makes the fruit, but the fruit makes the seed. And it makes similar seeds and similar fruits. They fall into the ground dormant for a while. Under the right conditions, they sprout. And so <clears throat> these sankaras, you are actively experiencing your mental sankaras right now. You may be thinking, this is too long, it's too boring. So you're having boredom sankaras. This is confusing, you're having confusion sankaras. You may be loving it, you have loving it sankaras. So under these conditions, certain habits and patterns of mind have become active. How many of you can honestly say you are totally enraged right now? Okay, that's the lucky guess that no one, there's nobody, or no one was willing to admit it. <clears throat> but we all have dormant rage in us. Under the right circumstances, we could make rage come out of you. So it's dormant right now. It's just, these are not the conditions. So sankaras run really deep in us. And often what we're doing is re reworking our sankaras, reworking our habits, so that we have healthy sankaras, a sense of patience that can be constructed. Patience draws patience, and then patience redraws patience. It's two, you know that Escher painting? Yeah. Two hands painting each other. You practice patience, that means you're planting the seeds of patience. That means when you need patience, it's more likely to come because you can call upon it versus having not practiced it and then found it uh, unuseful. So you, the whole, um, we're working our sankaras. And one of the things we're learning to do is actually, if you can put them to rest, then you have like, it's like tilling a garden. You till it, everything's rest, and then you grow beautiful sankaras, and then you put them to rest. Grow beautiful sankaras and put them to rest. A love you can't put to rest probably has gotten out of control. An anger you can't put to rest has definitely gotten out of control. So sankaras, they are dormant under conditions. They become live for a while and they go dormant again. But there's always some sankaras that are active and then other ones that are dormant waiting for conditions. In this 
stream here, sankharas, are mental habits, mental formations, uh, habits of speech, whether you're honest or critical, how you communicate, and they're also bodily habits, how you get yourself through the world. What are your bodily habits? What are your speech habits? What are your mental habits? I have many speech habits that are dormant right now, and they, they want to come alive in traffic. <laughs> I'll be honest and say a few times they do come alive in traffic but they're dormant now but I haven't eradicated them where do all these sankaras and so sankaras go from dormant to active and they shape what's happening with consciousness so if you have dormant anger and it arises that begins to cloud or um, affect consciousness. The same with um, love or kindness or benevolence or patience. Whatever sankaras have become active has a big impact over the type and quality of consciousness that arises and that in turn affects the type of cognition that's churning through you. Good enough? Question here? Yeah. So if, if we uh, notice in ourselves that we have uh, uh, certain mental formations that are uh, unwholesome and they yeah. come out in certain situations, like those situations don't arise very often. Uh, like last night I was playing Uno with friends yeah. and, I saw my, and I haven't done competitive anything in a while and I found myself getting really competitive at Uno. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, is that so why? I'm like, as I after I'm like, wow, I can't believe I responded this way to this game. Is the, is the skillful means to notice that this, is, this unwholesomeness comes out in certain competitive experiences and to like avoid competitive experiences for me? Or is, the whole, is, it, is, it, is it sort of to just know that this is my tendency and maybe more be mindful of it next time I play Uno? <laughs> or is it <coughs> like that? Both. <laughs> You learn to avoid so you don't just get recklessly taken over and then therefore just keep planting. Someone who has an anger cycle has to learn to suppress it at some point. Otherwise, they just keep reinforcing anger. But then where is all that anger coming from? It's coming from past anger, yes. But there's also a whole system that's making anger flourish that you have to look at. So you address both the sankara and you address the ground below it. And what is it all coming out of? What is all of the what are all these sankaras drawing their nourishment from? There's one link left. <laughs> so before you get to that link, my, is it as we purify ourselves, as we, as we do these the practice, yeah. does one like the you know the stream enter or the you know arahant or whatever, yeah. are they are their sankaras just sort of like, are they like neutralized or are they still there and they're just sort of, they have great awareness of them and they and mindfulness of that, of that tendency and they're just able to move beyond it? They're done. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. That's what the tradition says. That's, that's been my experience is certain things go done. And there's a whole teaching on the ten fetters and the ten fetters are sankaras. And so a stream entrant has taken out of their system never to arise again uh, 
doubt in the path, confusion about how it, like what, what are the 12 links for sure, but does this path actually connect me to liberation? That doubt is out of the system. So is a belief in I am this persona. I like, I am not this persona. This persona is not a rock solid thing. And also the belief in, in all these habits you're doing that you realize are not path habits. So they don't actually lead you anywhere. So they don't actually have an outcome unless they actually are playing a role in Eightfold Path. And so a whole bunch of things fall away at the, when you have your stream entrant moment. Three dormant sankaras, um, their, their entire bloodline is neutralized. And then each stage of awakening neutralizes more. So that's, that's the role of vipassana. The role of concentration is to calm your sankaras down. Calm them down so you can then do the work of vipassana. And vipassana is what ends up going into the ground which all these dormant sankaras are lying and begins to transform the underlying ground. And those sankaras that are not in alignment with wisdom begin to break apart. And they're no longer dormant. Samadhi can only make them dormant. It's the pasana that begins to uproot. So where is all this coming from, these sankaras? Where are they drawing their, their juice from? Ignorance, and that's this Pali word avijja. Vidya, vidya is the type of knowledge that comes from study. So if you've studied something well, you're developing your vidya. Avijja means the opposite of that or the corruption of that. So it's the wrong understanding, the wrong study, the wrong information. And this is at the base of um, dependent origination. Not seeing things clearly having the wrong paradigm has you buy into this whole, this whole chain reaction. So believing that you are, a, you are a lasting self, that will set you up for stepping into dependent origination. Knowing you are a fluid self begins to take you out of dependent origination. Believing that any moment's experience will be, the satisfaction gained from it will be lasting, will step you into dependent origination. Recognizing that pleasure comes and goes, pain comes and goes. There's no deep lasting contentment in the realm of changing pleasure and pain. Understanding the nature of dukkha steps you out of dependent origination. Understanding impermanence steps you out of dependent origination. Believing in things being permanent steps you into dependent origination. So this is what avijja is. Avijja is not seeing this, not seeing this in motion and buying into a paradigm, even if you're well-intended, that has at its root um, unclarity. So all the good-intended people trying to get some type of satellite around Mars or a Mars rover still believing that Mars goes around the Earth would, could be wise and well-intended and never get that little spacecraft onto Mars because they don't have the right paradigm. If you have a self-paradigm, a satisfaction paradigm, and a lasting permanent paradigm, you are, even if you're well-intended, going to end up being embroiled in dependent origination. 
Same with the four Brahma Viharas. If you believe that hate is a, is a solution and worth cultivating, you're stepping into dependent origination. All understand that, that cultivating uh, love, kindness, sympathetic joy, equanimity, that those are better heart qualities and figuring out how to live in the world with those heart qualities versus hate and resentment and envy, you're stepping out of dependent origination. So it's a paradigm. It's a paradigm at the bottom of it, a confused paradigm that has it actually function. And the more that conf the, the greater that confusion, the greater the suffering caused by dependent origination. The lighter it is, the less suffering that comes from this. So when the Buddha went out to teach his first five students, he was looking for people who had just a little dust in their eye. And the way I see it is that they just had a little A in front of their bija. <laughs> just a little, really small font A right in front of their vija. And, the, and even the color tone of it was very, like, you could hardly see it there, but it was a little tiny A. And you just had to remove that A and tell it like it is. And then what rippled through their entire system was just an abandoning of confusion. It's like straightened right up within a week, five people. Got all the way clean. Because he took the A out of the... All of Buddhism is to remove this A from, <laughs> from dependent origination. It's the entire thing is just, can we break that A or at least reduce it so that there's understanding. And with understanding, things align and you understand. You can understand that someone yelling at you, chances are they've been yelled at. And so someone yelling at you could be the neon sign for compassion, but then we get indignant. Why are they yelling at me? Well, they must be a bad person. Chances are, if they're yelling at me, they're having a bad experience. And it comes from a history of bad experiences. So this person yelling at me could be a sign of patience and trying to understand what's going on, making sure they don't hurt me. But this is, this is I'm looking at pain. But because we get defensive, we step where our dependent origination flourishes up. But with right understanding, you're free of it. You don't step into it. You don't play by this game, by the dependent origination. So putting, <clears throat> putting it all together, we have these 12 links. What, um, what they often do in places like uh, Burma and Thailand is they put specific emphasis on different parts of the wheel. And so one part of your practice can be meeting your contact and Vedana just as it is and not letting there be a lot of reactivity. That's breaking the second half of the wheel. The other is learning to calm your system down and see the truth. And that disrupts the entire wheel. So the two points are between Vedana and craving. There's effort put in there. And then there's effort to work on what is this paradigm you're living by and what are the patterns that have developed within that paradigm. And the more healthy your understanding, the more healthy the habits, the more healthy the, the patterns that get developed. So that's, that's where people put their effort into the green of this circle versus the blue. And they've seen that the blue is more the outcome of the green. That's just fairly common. Um, where to put the effort? You put the effort on the craving, the clinging, the becoming. 
you put the effort on the misunderstanding and the patterns that have grown in the misunderstanding. You can clean up Nama Rupa, you can clean up consciousness, but the real um, toxifiers of this system are not understanding and those patterns, and then the craving, clinging, and becoming. Out in daily life, <clears throat> I, I don't, it's hard to explore all 12 and keep them in linear order. And so I use this, um, this, this is more how I would use this map out in daily life. There is deeply rooted tendencies, the paradigm you're living by and the patterns that have been caused. That influences your present time cognition. Your present time cognition experiences pleasure and pain. That feeds a type of immediate reactivity and long-term patterns of that reactivity produces a process of selfing. So I use this, I can do this in daily life. It's a simpler list. It kind of captures the Monet painting of dependent origination. I can kind of work my program on the fly out in the street, but out in actual long-term meditation retreat or over time, you can actually watch yourself proceeding through dependent origination. Watching yourself proceed through dependent origination, dependent origination wakes you up to it. And so it's not just about quieting it down. Sometimes you actually have to watch it in motion to learn about how it behaves, to really see the paradigm, to expose the paradigm. If you are cruising along, taking yourself as solid but getting away with it, and then you don't get away with it, the very place you didn't get away with it can expose the type of relationship you're having to self or happiness or security or permanence. So seeing dependent origination in motion also weakens it, as does learning to calm it down by calming down the sankharas that are feeding it. One time I was in a uh, cafe where I like to do a lot of work <clears throat> and I really loved all that I sensed or experienced in this cafe. So I'd be typing Dharma talks and they'd be playing music I liked and there were kind of funky San Francisco people around and um, it's like the whole atmosphere of it. Um, and one day I was doing my work and I just wasn't really clicking. I was like, oh, why am I not enjoying this so much? So I started doing a scan, what's going on here? It turned out they changed brand of chocolate chip cookies. And I was like, how could, why would this be bothering me? And so I began to eat. It's like, it's sugar, it's sweet, I like it. You know, it's got chocolate in it. But it's not the same brand. I realized I was attached to the brand of cookie they had. So I was like, okay, I've identified it. I'm putting it down, put it down. I keep typing, but I'm still not happy. And I watched my mind get play this dependent origination game and suffer over it. And it was really fascinating. I'd learned so much in seeing it once that it couldn't fool me as well after that. So seeing yourself really get caught once can really break the whole enchantment of how the game plays out. So the story started to build in the back of my mind. I'm a pretty loyal customer. 
yeah, I can picture myself being here many, many times, buying a lot of coffee and tea and buying a lot of these cookies. I think I'm owed. This sort of like, I'm owed the cookie I want. And I'm going to go tell them, by the way, this new brand of cookie doesn't work for me. And I look and there's like seven people trying to order. They're all impatient and the baristas are working as fast as they can. But I'm going to, I actually was willing to be that one customer walking up with my little wrapped up cookie, handing it back to them, my Buddhist way, being really calm and, but like really clear. I was like, I'm just completely lost in this sense of, you know, I'm a loyal customer. I've been here for a long time. I get to kind of have the cookie I want. And I'm like, wow, I'm really watching my mind wanting this. And it started producing this plan of what I was going to say to them. And, and I'm like, that's just going to be annoying. And you already have basically a chocolate chip cookie. You could roll with this. And actually, you could do the adapting <laughs> versus having them adapt around you so you get what you want. But I was so fascinated. And this is post-monk. <laughs> Here I am, post-monk, still wanting it my way. I'm post-monk. Like, I, I have suffered so much to be free of this stuff. And I'm going to tie myself into a knot, not because I have a bad chocolate chip cookie. It's not just not the combination of sugar, chocolate, and crunch that I was expecting. And I don't want to adapt. I don't want to do the adaptation I want the cookie I had, and I don't have it now. And I'm actually going to make a little bit of a stink around this because I want to stand up for myself here. And I was like, wow, you really, you really believe all this. You really want this. You really think that person like, oh, really? Hold on. I'm sorry, my customer has a chocolate chip cookie issue. And I really want to hear what's going on with him and this brand of chocolate chip cookie. And like, okay, okay, wow, you look really hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry we didn't see you. I thought, I'm sorry you didn't feel seen and, and loved and felt you know, the loyalty. Like, well, let me do something corrective for you. Like, no, I'm going to adapt because I'm hung up here. It was such a small hang-up, but it was on the size that actually was so... I saw this stuff and I saw the trap and I saw myself building it for myself. They didn't do it to me by changing out the cookie. I did it to me by not adapting and clinging to the type of conditions and wanting those conditions to be permanent. We do this to ourselves, but we blame other people and we want them to do the work of getting us back to happy. But this is, our, this is an inside job. It's our misunderstandings that get us in trouble. And that's really the teaching of this, is that we, this is, this is the causing of why we get so distraught in life. Not that life is doing anything to us. It can produce a lot of pain, but it's our job to work on our side to grow out of the reactivity around what life is actually offering. At least that's the basis of this teaching. Let's see what's coming next here. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> um, <clears throat> What I actually want to do is give you a chance to stretch your body. So let's take a little break in silence. We'll take a 10-minute break. Stretch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.